Rick uh, Blueschick um, worked for uh, Boston Consulting and Accenture. Accenture and now runs his own management consulting firm. Has had over 20 years of management consulting, uh, as well as uh, <coughs> work in the academia area. Uh, I'll let Rick explain more about himself uh, once he gets up and starts talking. We're really looking forward to the, to the talk tonight, Rick. Uh, thanks for, for the end short notice and um, uh, love to hear all about the global financial crisis. Okay. Um, prior to my MBA, I was a clinical psychologist and worked in that field for about 10 years. Then went and did my MBA and became a management consultant in the classic sense. In the last couple of years, and um, certainly currently, uh, I spend half my time here at the university doing my teaching and, and uh, related ac academic activities. The other half of my time I spend working as uh, a leadership psychologist, which is what I refer myself to. I provide a combination of my experience as a clinical psychologist and my experience as a management consultant to advise, counsel, um, coach senior executives from um, corporations around the world, basically. Um, and so my interest in the global financial crisis arose from not just the simple fact that it, it's a monumental event, but that um, many of the explanations that people have resorted to in terms of trying to understand the dynamics of the crisis, both how it came about and its continuing effect on the global economy, they've been resorting to the sorts of words that as a psychologist I never thought I would hear business people utter. Things like feelings, emotions, panic. Um, uh, and these are the sorts of words, as I said, that you don't normally hear business people use. Well, in fact, we've heard economists use these kinds of words. So as a psychologist, my ears pricked up immediately. And so I did some digging, try to find out what was really going on and try and understand it from the point of view of not only the mechanics of the business world, but also from the point of view of um, how people's uh, behaviour has driven some of this outcome that we're now experiencing. Before we start, however, I need to know how much levity I can take in what I say. So how many of you in the room are bankers? Okay. How many of you have some considerable experience in finance? Good, excellent. So I won't be challenged on anything I have to say. Great. Okay. Um, we might as well get started if I can get this to work. Okay. Um, I originally put together this work and did the, did the, did the modest amount of research that I did because my students were asking a lot of questions about it. They obviously didn't understand it. And for me, this was a classic case study in global business. And given that I'm the course coordinator for Global Business Context, it seemed to me like the perfect subject to pick up for the students. There's a whole host of theories, hypotheses, theses, ideas that try to explain why and how the global financial crisis has come about, why it occurred, and have tried to explain, um, therefore, um, what we should do about it. And depending on which one of these classic explanations you ascribe to, it will obviously determine a different set of solution scenarios that you might resort to in order to ensure that it doesn't happen again. But this is the complicated version because in my view, and certainly in the view of most informed economists, would be that 
um, not any one of these is sufficient to explain the global financial crisis, but in some way each one of them has played a role in contributing to what we now have as variously referred to as the GFC, the GEC, the global tsunami, the credit crunch, whatever you like. But I'll come back to these because what I want to do first is I want to go through the crisis in a much simpler version, in a version that at least my students seem to be able to understand and hopefully will, will pique some of your interest as well. Here's how it works. Take someone with no money, you get a used car salesman to sell them a house, and what you end up with is a banker without any assets and the economy in the toilet. So that essentially explains the global financial crisis. Let me just go back and run that by you again. So we started off with people with no money getting mortgages. As a result of people with no money and being unable to fulfill their mortgage obligations, the bankers took a bit of a hiding and as a result everything in the economy went into the toilet. So how did that happen? Well, let's go back a little bit first and understand what banks are actually doing and why the banks have actually got us into all of this sort of trouble. Now, if you remember, um, banks used to be a store of capital, right? A bank would take deposit money and then use that to lend to borrowers. And the banks essentially did little more than that, and as a result, if they made bad loans to people, they were the ones who um, wore the entire consequence of that loss. So banks were usually fairly diligent about working out who they were going to lend their money to. Now, some of you are almost as old as me in this room, I think, so you can probably remember back in the 60s when, in order to get a housing loan from a bank, you had to be a customer of that bank for some considerable period of time. You had to demonstrate a good record of savings. You had to be on good personal relationships with the bank manager before you even got a look-in for a housing loan. Now, of course, things are very, very different today. But back then, that's what you had to go through. That was because if the banks were the only source of mortgage-type finance or finance for small business and car loans and so on, the capital that they had available to them because that was coming from depositors was essentially highly restricted, right? So um, banks basically bore the brunt of all of the decisions that they made. As a result of that, and as a result of the issues that occurred with banks and the run on the banks in the 1930s, there was a whole bunch of banking regulation that was instituted as a result of the Depression, okay? basically to control what the banks actually did. In addition to which, as I said, as a result of that, capital was highly restricted, and so the whole concept of other sources of finance, such as investment banks, started to become prominent um, about 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and governments in controlling banks as being the major source of this kind of finance also had a prominent role in the economy. Now, um, again, most of you, many of you, will probably remember that about 20-something, almost 30 years ago now, 
the whole banking and financial system started to be deregulated. Many of these laws that were brought in in the 1930s and 40s to control the way in which banks behaved started to be rolled back. The most classic and most famous of those in the US was the Glass-Steagall Act, which was about <coughs> um, how banks, uh, what sort of capital reserves banks would need to have. There was also um, uh, another banking law in the US which was about bank branching, so how many branches a bank could have. All of these started to get rolled back in the late 70s and early 80s under pressure from people who said, there's not enough capital in the system, right? We need more capital. The only way we're going to get more capital is if we deregulate the financial system. It's these regulations that are clogging up the system. So the idea was, let's get some more capital. So banks worked like this. They took savings from depositors and punched the money out to borrowers with loans. They needed more of this stuff, however. And so in the 1970s, they started to look for different sources of capital in order to be able to fund more of their loans because the savings from depositors was really no longer enough to uh, fuel the demand in the economy. And as the <coughs> financial sector, the financial system started to be deregulated, opportunity to source capital from other places than just depositors became a possibility. And here are the major sources of capital throughout the last few decades. Remember in the 1970s when we had the oil crisis, the Middle Eastern countries, the OPEC countries, all became very, very wealthy very, very quickly. And the whole concept of petrodollars came up, i.e. these guys had an excess of capital. They needed to do something with it in order to get returns on that capital. One of the ways in which they did it was they started to lend it to lending institutions. Okay? So petrodollars. In the 1980s, we had um, LBOs, MBOs and restructures of corporations that released previously locked up capital. One of the famous examples of that in Australia would be John Elders, uh, sorry, John, John Elliott in his buying of Elders and IXL. He restructured those companies and freed up a whole bunch of lazy capital that had been sitting there that was essentially being unused. That capital then went into the system and became available for, you know, loans and what have you within the financial sector. Same sort of thing happened in the 90s with private equity funds. Private equity funds, you know, are simply the pooling of funds from private sources and again, used to fund activity in the business sector primarily, but eventually the increase in capital finds its way through the banking systems. And in the 2000s, we've had the, the rise of China, an excess of savings in China. China needs to do something with that money. It lends it out to lending institutions. New petrodollars for countries like um, Venezuela uh, and Russia, all of a sudden high prices of oil, they have lots of petrodollars. And of course hedge funds being able to again leverage money from private sources in ways that were previously um, unavailable. So we now have a substantial increase in the capital available to banks to start to lend out. However, there was still a problem with the old system because whilst the banks could access depositors' savings and capital from other sources, um, uh, it could still only flow at a particular pace. But now that they were starting to get capital from other sources and not entirely reliant on depositors, what we found that banks were no longer a store of capital. Okay? 
they basically just became, started to become, around about this time, around about the 80s, started to become basically just a clearinghouse. They were no longer reliant on the depositors' funds as their main source of capital in order to lend to borrowers. So I've taken away the icon of the dollars because they are no longer an essential store of capital. Capital is stored elsewhere. The problem is, however, that you can only pump out money in a particular, at a particular rate. Let's take, um, uh, uh, as an example, a $100,000 loan. If you apply a 7% interest rate to that over 25 years, the bank's going to get back about $700 a month, okay, or about $8,500 a year, which eventually over 25 years totals $212,000. Right? So what that means is, is that the banks are pumping out $100,000 loans, but they're getting that money back in drips and drabs over a 25-year period. Okay? So eventually, the banks are going to run out of money. Now, they can continue to source that capital from other sources, but there's a bit of a blockage in the pipeline here in terms of the money flowing through the economy. Okay? Banks need to put out a lot of money up front, and they get drips and dribbles back. So how do we fix that? Well, some genius somewhere, and I'm not sure I know his name, and if anyone does, they can please let me know after the, after the discussion, decided that we can do something with this. We can do something with the fact that banks actually have an asset that they previously didn't realise they had, which is a regular flow of predictable cash coming through over an extended period of time. Right? That is an asset, okay? That's an asset that somebody might actually be prepared to pay for if it matches their outgoings, right? This is what, this is a great way to hedge your risk. If you're a company that has a certain need to pay a certain amount of money over a, an extended period of time, you've made a long-term obligation on some capital investment or something and you have to pay out a certain amount of money, then maybe one way of matching that would be to buy a regular flow of cash, right? So, if we've got um, our $100,000 loan multiplied by 1,000, we now have $705,000 a month that the bank has as an asset. So, that takes $100 million of capital. But all of you know from your classes on discounted cash flow analysis that someone for that kind of cash flow over 25 years might actually be prepared to pay a substantial amount of money and even more than the $100 million that the bank actually put out initially. Because remember, the bank supplied at 7%. So if someone wants to buy that cash flow today, they would be prepared to pay more than the $100 million that the bank has actually laid out. So now the bank has laid out $100 million, has got a cash flow, a monthly, regular monthly cash flow coming through. They can sell that cash flow for more than what they actually put out, potentially, right? Or at least the equivalent. And who's the genius that came up with that? Our classic friend, the master of the universe, right? So they said, look, we can sell this to somebody because we have businesses on our books as our clients who would love to be able to purchase a regular, reliable, low-risk flow of cash um, through their business that, that is guaranteed for them over, over 25 years. So what they did was they said, we'll buy that flow of cash from you We'll put it together, we'll put all of these mortgages together into a security 
and we'll sell those securities to our clients. And the smart way of doing this, as the bankers worked out, was by securitising it, they didn't have to sell it all in one lump. They could sell it in little bits and pieces, just like you can sell little bits and pieces of a company by securitising the shares, right? So by making the shares tradable on the share market, you can sell shares in billion-dollar companies for as little as a few dollars, okay, per share. Yep? Is that assuming that Adam Freeman is just lazy cash lying around somewhere? Or well, basically, it can come from anywhere, right? Um, it could very well be a situation where um, a cashed-up capital-intensive industry, let's say a mining company or an energy-generating um, company, um, has invested in uh, some platinum equipment, requires a, a, a flow of cash to maintain it or a flow of cash to pay off the loan on it that is similar to what <coughs> the bank has on its mortgage books, they have a lump of cash, rather than investing that cash in something risky like the share market so that that gives them a return, they might say, well, look, no, I want a guaranteed flow of cash, right? I'll buy a bond. And in this case, it'll be a mortgage bond, but they could buy a treasury bond or whatever. Thing is that these bonds offer, actually offer you a better return than a risk-free treasury bond. And the trick was, as we'll get to in a moment, the trick was to make sure that they were low enough risk for clients to be attracted to them, right? So this goes on all the time. There are all sorts of instruments out there that match clients or companies' cash flow needs with particular types of bonds, warrants, um, investments that actually meet those needs in terms of their returns. Okay? Um, and it, it's all about managing the risk of those returns, which is what the investment banks essentially work on. We can help you manage your risk by changing the nature of the way in which the cash flows through your business. And instead of investing in risky things like shares to get a high return, we can give you something else that gives you almost as high return, but the, the flows are as, as assured or as, or as, um, as predictable as, as, as you'd want them to be. So we have our master of the universe going to the bank and saying, we'll take these loans off your hands, we'll give you something close to the face value of those loans, and then you can use that $100 million or the money that you've just given out and lend it to somebody else. So the, now the banks have a much faster flow. They used to have a lot of money going out and a little trickle coming back. By the brilliance of this intermediary here, we now have a lot of money going out and a lot of money coming back. And so you can see how the banks now no longer even holding the loans that they previously had as assets on their books, but simply selling off those assets. Again, they less and less start to look like a store of capital and much more look like simply a transaction clearinghouse. Okay. Um, so I'll ask a question like I would in my class. What do you think might be the consequence of this kind of behaviour from the point of view of the banks? Yes. They find more ways to sell their assets to people like the master of the universe. Yes, they could indeed. Absolutely. The point being, however, though, that now that it's really now the game is not how many loans you do. Oh, sorry, how big your loans are so much as how many you do, because you don't. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to hold those loans. So the more loans you do the more transaction costs you take for arranging those loans, the more money you can actually make. So now it became a game not of 
quality loans that we have on our books then underpin our revenue or our income for the foreseeable future, our revenue or our income now becomes much more about transaction fees. Right? Well, indeed, and you see, there are lots of people in the banking game um, who will tell you that um, banking is essentially a really, really, really boring business, right? Because it's about taking a lot of money, giving it away, and then watching it trickle back, right? It's really not very complicated. It's in fact very simple and very straightforward. When you change the nature of the game, however, and it becomes about the quantum and the nature of the transactions you do, suddenly it becomes really interesting. Because now it be you have an incentive to think up, as you say, new ways of generating different types of transactions. So, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's exactly right, right? They buy the stock from the people who have the capital, and then they sell it to the people who turn up at the door. Okay? It becomes a much more interesting business. So you can see how people might be attracted to this for all sorts of reasons. Not only is it more lucrative, because you can pump more money through and therefore make more money, uh, make more income, but it also makes the whole business a little bit more interesting than the boring old thing that banking used to be. So, now we have a situation where we've got the person who owns the mortgages now is the investment banker. Right? He's bought the mortgages from the bank, he's put them into a security and called it a mortgage bond or a collateralised debt obligation or some other fancy beautiful name that they come up with on Wall Street. So what does he do with it? Well, as all investment bankers do, they sell. So now he sells these bonds to retail investors, people like you and me, typically through our pension funds but sometimes directly. City councils, lots of businesses around the world bought these, as I said before, bought these bonds because of the cash flow. And ironically, lots of banks bought these securities as well because, again, they matched in some way, shape or form their obligations on the other side. Interestingly, one of the reasons why Lehman Brothers went under in the global financial crisis is because Lehman Brothers retained a very large proportion of the loans that it sold for itself as its own investment. So it had a very high exposure to these kinds of, these kinds of bonds um, uh, when things started to turn sour. You know, they, they themselves saw them as being very, very good investments. So how could you not believe a, an investment banker who comes along to you and says, I can sell you these fantastic bonds, they're so fantastic, even we've got lots of them on our books, right? You'd have to believe them, wouldn't you? Okay. <coughs> The trick here, however, is, is that, as you probably know, city councils, certainly in Australia, certainly I think in the United States and many parts of the world, have very restricted guidelines about where they can invest their money. Essentially, the rules say they can only invest their money in AAA-rated securities. So this is where Moody's and Standard & Poor's become really central to the whole scenario. Because that master of the universe has no hope of selling these things to city councils, banks, or even many pension funds. He could probably sell a fair few to the businesses around the world that have particular risk and hedging needs, but it would be much tougher to sell them to the city councils and the pension funds. And we know that 
pension funds, superannuation funds, um, city councils have lots of money to invest. So how do we get those organisations to invest? Well, we get Moody's and S&P to give them a really good rating. And that's exactly what Moody's and S&P did. They basically gave them all a AAA rating. Okay. So now we have what is, according to Moody's and S&P, a AAA rated security. Absolutely the best you can get other than a risk-free security from a government. So it's, 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 it's the gold standard. Okay. You cannot lose, is essentially what AAA means. Okay. And given that they're offering a significantly higher return than a government-backed bond, they become extremely attractive to exactly these kinds of institutions, particularly the superannuation funds and the city councils. So, we'll get back to Moody's and S&P's role in this in, in, a, in a moment. But this is how the whole system basically got to work so neatly. Yes? Well, why city councils? What do you mean why city councils? Well, the others are in business, the city council. Supposed to be in the afternoon. City councils have lots of money to invest, that's why. City councils get their rates all in at one big lump, by and large. Right? Most of their money comes all at one time of the year. So they've got a whole bunch of money that they need to do something with, which they then will spend progressively over that year. Right? So they've got to do something with it. It would seem to be silly to stick it in the bottom drawer of the CFO's desk. So they invest it. And of course, in order to protect the fact that these funds are absolutely essential to the running of the council, the state governments have put in the law that you can't invest in anything that isn't AAA. Right? Okay. So, that's how the scenario works. The idea was such a damn good idea, people started to copy it. Right? More and more investment banks started to do this kind of stuff. So, our little master of the universe here now is absolutely doing a roaring trade with banks all around the world in selling these kinds of securitised loans, these kinds of securitised mortgages. But what happens then is someone like John Simons comes along and says, well, if they can do it and they're not really a store of capital anymore, why can't I do it? I can set up an office in um, Pitt Street in Sydney and I can simply sell mortgages or give loans to people and then sell the mortgage to the investment banker. Right? I can do it just as well as a bank can. And again, the, the deregulation of the financial industry allowed exactly this kind of operation to set itself up. Now, the great thing about this for us as consumers, people who were looking for home loans, was more competition, gave us better service, gave us lower rates, lower transaction fees and all the rest of it. So we all took advantage of the fact that the financial deregulation that the government instituted, governments around the world instituted, actually was a good outcome, looked like a win-win for everybody. Okay? So, now we have big lumps of money flowing around the system. Not only banks, but mortgage originators, who essentially have nothing, right? They've got an office, they've got computers, and that's it. And the money just flows through the system. They don't, they don't have any money in their safe, they don't have a safe, they don't have anything like that. This is just essentially exactly what the banks had started to become, a transaction clearinghouse. That's all it is. They don't own the money, they don't own the loans, they don't own anything. All they do is they take a clip every time they take a clip as the, as the money passes through, they take their little percentage off the top. It's a beautiful system, works brilliantly well. Oh, and uh, in case you're wondering about 
mortgage brokers, mortgage brokers even do it better because mortgage brokers represent banks in selling loans. Not only do they get the transaction fees for setting up the loan, but in case you didn't know, they get trailer fees, trailing fees. So if you take out a loan through one of the mortgage brokers around town, which in fact Aussie Home Loans has now become, not just a mortgage originator, that mortgage broker will get a percentage of the amount of money that you pay back on your mortgage for not the life of the mortgage, but for a considerable number of years to come as their fee for setting up the loan. Okay? It's a beautiful system, right? You sell one loan and you've got a guaranteed income for up to as long as 10 years in some cases. Yes. Yeah. Um, and from my experience in having worked for a company that dabbled in mortgage broking for a very short period of time, that gave them an asset to then sell. Ah, there you go. Beautiful. Exactly. So now you can sell your part of this, of this guaranteed cash flow coming in every month. Right? Okay. This is how John Ilhan became really rich as well, because he got trailing fees on every single mobile phone contract he sold on behalf of Telstra. He would get, for the life of the contract of that phone, usually two years, he would get a percentage of your monthly payment for your calls. So the more calls you made, the richer John Ilhan became. Okay. Even though he didn't own in the communications network, didn't own a damn thing, right? Except a few shop fronts. And that's exactly what mortgage originators and mortgage brokers are doing. Exactly the same thing. Okay. So if I haven't convinced you yet that being in the finance business is a great way to make money by doing very, very little, then keep listening. Okay, so now we've got this stuff happening globally. So what happens is this looks like such a fantastic win-win deal that securitisation of mortgage loans now becomes the norm. Mind you, the first securitisation of loans only really happened in the early 1990s. I think 1994 was the first time that investment banks started to securitise mortgage loans. Okay? So in a very, very short space of time, they went from a very low percentage of mortgages to virtually 100% of all mortgages were now being securitised. This is US data, and I thank very much Amit Saru from the University of Chicago who did a wonderful lecture on the real technical detail of all of this in November last year. Um, but you can see this is now the norm, right? This is not something that's exotic or something that's a little bit off the wall for um, uh, fancy players in the finance sector. This is what every bank is doing with every, virtually every single one of its mortgage loans. This is US data, so this would apply specifically to the US, but in most other countries, certainly Europe and in Australia, a very high proportion of the mortgages that would be um, lent out would then be securitised. Uh, um, yes? I'm not so sure about Australia. I okay, please. Australia just had a Bell Potter talking about this exactly the same issue. Totally support your slide there in terms of US, where it was um, uh, approaching 90% of uh, mortgages were securitised. In Australia, it's around 7%. So that's why, uh, that's why the impact of um, the financial crisis on Australia relative to the US was nowhere near as dramatic. It was more flowance. I'd be happy to discuss that with you. Mm. I'm just hoping you're not mistaking that 7% to be subprime mortgages, which is a class of mortgage, and it was a very low percentage of total mortgages in Australia were subprime, i.e. low-doc loans, as they're called here. Right? 
Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was much more than 7% of the total mortgage pool were being securitised in Australia. Okay. Um, so, becomes the norm. So eventually a good idea goes fantastic, right? So now we have houses being sold, the mortgage is being securitised, and the bonds look like this. Lots and lots of AAA rated loans, and every now and then we've got the odd double A, the odd A, and maybe even a really bad one, a subprime mortgage that's a very high risk mortgage because of the fact that the person who's been lent the money doesn't have as strong an income history, right? They're called low doc loans in Australia because they're typically given to self-employed people, plumbers, electricians, management consultants who are self-employed, um, because they don't have, obviously, um, a regular income. So low doc means you don't have the documentation to prove that you've got a regular income. All you've got is your annual tax return statements. So they are indeed much higher risk. So the individual loan would be rated much more lowly than um, a mortgage given to someone who has a double income family with, um, uh, with you know, a, a, a strong employment record and, and, and regular income. Problem is, is that eventually you run out of the triple A's and more and more of what you're giving your loans to start to look like this. More and more of the people who are being lent the money are people who don't have the kinds of income records that would give them a very high rating and therefore a low risk. And this is where the whole subprime issue started to come into its own. One of the things that the investment banks did during the 1990s in particular, but certainly accelerated in the 2000s, was they started to hire people with PhDs in mathematics, physics, and who were really, really good at doing spreadsheets to, to run all sorts of very complicated and complex and sophisticated financial models based on risk, looking for ways in which they could discover where risk had been mispriced, right? That's obviously arbitrage, that's what investment banks do, looking for opportunities to leverage or to, to take advantage of mispriced risk. Someone discovered that the default rate on subprime mortgages, right, people who were considered to be high risk, the default rate on those subprime mortgages was actually not much higher than your AAA mortgages. So what they were arguing was, clearly there's a mispricing of risk here. People who are considered to be high risk because they don't have a regular income, they're not employees, actually don't default on their mortgage loans very much. And you can understand why, okay? It's your home, you don't want to give it up. You'll give up all sorts of things before you give up paying for your mortgage. And so on the basis of this research, these mathematical boffins said, look, there's a mispricing of risk here. If we actually sell more mortgages to these subprime people, we're actually not taking on a significantly greater amount of risk. But what we're doing is we're increasing the pool of people to whom we can sell, or to whom we can lend money and, and, and sell mortgages, okay? The problem with that was, of course, that they were using historical data over a long period of time. People picked up on this idea, the bankers picked up on this idea, and they started to say, right, in the US in particular, right, subprime people are actually a pretty good risk, let's go for it. Let's try and find as many subprime people as we can, 
because they'll be desperate for mortgages, will sell the mortgages. The risk is relatively um, the same as a AAA mortgage. So we can still sell lots more loans, we can give out lots more mortgages, um, and yet we won't be increasing our risk profile at all. So despite the fact that now we've got lots of mortgages inside these bonds that are not AAA rated, the bonds themselves are still getting a AAA rating. Okay? So if you use the statistical modelling that they've done, you would be able to show that historically subprime mortgages are not significantly more risky than um, full documentation or um, low risk mortgages. So that fueled the whole process of let's get out there and do some more. Um, but of course, eventually, some of these subprime mortgage holders were going to default, and they did. Okay. It all started to unravel in 2006 when what was a housing bubble in the United States basically started to slow down. Mortgage, uh, sorry, housing prices in the United States were going up by roughly anywhere up to 20% a year from about 2002 through 2006. Who can tell me why? The lower interest rates. That's one reason. There's another very good reason. Yeah, don't forget there was a market crash in 2001. Sorry, May 2000. Dot com crash. Everybody pulled their money out of the stock market. Where do you put your money Where you pull, when you pull it out of the stock market? Typically, houses, right? Because it's safe as houses, right? So a lot of money went from the stock market into the housing market. The bubble went up. The bubble started to get bigger and bigger when the banks said, hey, we can start lending to these subprime fellows, right? To these subprime people. So now we have even a bigger pool of people chasing homes to buy with very cheap mortgages. And so the bubble just keeps feeding on itself, as asset bubbles often tend to do. But as they started to run out of people to lend to, the prices started to stabilise and then started to go down. And so what we thought were AAAs, and as these things started to default at a much greater rate than the models had actually predicted, we found that these things were not AAA at all. They were, in fact, something quite different. Um, the problem was compounded even further when, as these bonds started to lose value because the default rates were higher than was anticipated, so the cash flow that you thought you'd paid for was no longer coming through at the rate that you had anticipated, it was almost impossible to find out what was inside the bond that you had a piece of. Right? These things were... Had, sorry, these things contained lots and lots and lots of bonds sliced in, uh, lots and lots of mortgages sliced in lots of different ways. And so to find out what was actually inside one of these things and what piece of it you owned was in fact very, very difficult. And that's what we mean by toxic asset. That's why people are referring to these things as toxic assets. Sure, they're bonds, sure they've got mortgages in them, but the way that they've been put together and the way that they've been sold means that it's almost impossible to find the actual hard asset that backs up each one of those loans, the hard asset being the home, right, or the homeowner who's paying the mortgages. So no one knows whether they've got one of these 
or one of these sitting on their books. All they know is they've got a mortgage bond. Okay. And the story gets even more ridiculous when I heard on, a, on the Wall Street Journal radio program, which I pick up as a podcast, um, about a month and a half ago, a young woman, no, young woman, an older woman in Florida was about to be foreclosed on by her bank because she couldn't keep up her mortgage payments. The bank had, like lots of other banks, securitised her mortgage amongst a whole bunch of others and sold off the mortgage. They were obviously still collecting the payments like we do, we pay to our bank, but the money was essentially going off to the investment banks. They were about to foreclose on her. A benevolent, friendly lawyer came to her and said, look, let's have a look and see if they actually really do have your mortgage. Because if it's been securitised, technically speaking, they may not actually own it. So the lawyer challenged the bank in court, and guess what? They didn't have the documentation to prove that they actually had any rights over her mortgage. Worse still, they haven't been able to find who does. <laughs> so now we have a woman sitting in Florida in a home for which she's paying absolutely no mortgage payments, um, and no one is able to foreclose on that mortgage because no one can prove that they actually own the loan. Now, this came about because these things are very complex and because in the rush to get these things through the door as fast as they possibly could, a few investment bankers, many of whom aren't known for their attention to detail, didn't actually fill out all the documentation appropriately. Apparently, this experience of this woman in Florida is now becoming a little bit more common in the US so that people are now genuinely starting to challenge the foreclosure actions against them and banks are scrambling to make sure that they've actually got the right documentation. So just another little side story on all of this. So the little guy does win sometimes. But I'd like the idea of living in a house where I didn't have to pay any mortgage payments and <laughs> no one could take it off me because no one could prove that they owned the mortgage. So now we have the fact that that these mortgage bonds are now toxic. No one knows what they're worth, no one knows what's inside them. So now we have um, a problem whereby the whole banking system, particularly those banks that have lots of these things on their books, are in real trouble because their assets don't back up their liabilities. And when assets don't back up liabilities, you are insolvent, right? And that's exactly the process the US government is going through now with their stress test. Love the way they come up with these sorts of things. We're doing a stress test. We're not testing to see if they're insolvent or not. We're doing a stress test. Um, what it actually means is, is that they're checking to see whether, in fact, their assets do back up their liabilities. And uh, in many cases, I think they're going to find that, in fact, anything but is the truth. So that's the simple version of what happened. It's basically. People being given loans who shouldn't have been given loans and people selling those loans who got uh, seduced by the own, their own cleverness of what they were doing by recycling the money. And the game became not the loan, the game became the transaction. Okay? Let me quickly now go through some of these more technical and some of these more complicated versions of the factors that led to all of this. The first one is global imbalances. This is, according to the US, balance. <laughs> this 
according to the US, is imbalance. Okay? Now, global imbalances simply means that after the Asian financial crisis of 1997, all of the Asian economies put a lot more effort into savings and storing up of capital, China being the most successful. So China now has an excess of capital, an excess of savings relative to its own needs, and the US has a dearth of savings. Because of low interest rates, people are spending a lot of money. So what happens is China keeps buying US treasuries, essentially lending their US dollars back to the US so that the US can buy more Chinese goods. So now we have this virtuous circle of China producing lots of goods, giving the money to the US with which the US consumer can buy those goods, and the circle keeps going. Right. Now, this is what people mean when they say global imbalances. The global imbalance is China got too big, the US got too small. Before, when it was the other way, everything was in perfect balance according to the US. So that's, that's the one story. The one story is China feeding too much money into the US economy created too much cheap capital, which then, in order to try and find something to do with this capital, it encouraged people to do things that was a little bit dodgy. Yes? Is that real or is it perception? Oh, it's, um, it's definitely real. The, China does have a, a, an enormous excess of savings relative to its own needs. And so the only thing it can do with it is invest it somewhere, and the best place for, for them to invest it, in fact, is in US Treasury bonds. So it wouldn't be like a, uh, you know, one of those uh, Soviet Union bursts. The, you know, the perception was a great country, but when you look at the reality, it's actually holding nothing in its current kernel. Uh, no, no, indeed, China is a very different phenomenon. Um, and in fact, what China is now being able to do with a, as a result of all of that capital that they've got is they're actually starting to invest much more in their own economy through their own stimulus packages, which is and, and certainly one of the stories I have from someone that I know very well who attended the World Economic Forum where the Chinese Premier um, uh, spoke. He spoke to some of the advisers, some of his advisers, and he was reassured. He said, look, if you think China's going down the gurgler, you're being fooled. Don't look at Shanghai and Beijing, which is where most of the journalists go and stop. Look, um, look at the other big cities in our nation where we have enormous infrastructure needs that we need to spend money on and that's exactly what they're doing. That, and, and you've seen that the evidence that came out I think last week or earlier this week that the Chinese economy is growing at 6.3%. Now anyone in their right mind would love a 6.3% um, rate of GDP growth, right? And that's coming as a result of China now investing its own stimulus package, its own infrastructure spending. But some say that they can be broadcast, you know, 8%. No one can argue because it's very complicated to actually assess that. Well, yeah, but that's true of every country. So um, uh, at the end of the day, you've got to look at the, the balances of, of what's on their books, you know, the money that they've got relative to what's actually happening in the, in the economy. So we don't have any major reason to disbelieve that that 6.3% isn't somewhere near accurate. Okay, so that's a global imbalances story. The second lot of arguments is it's the government's fault argument right, that caused all of this. And the story goes, there's one of three versions of this story. One is the US under George Bush and the Republicans 
um, had a policy of being very laissez-faire in its um, uh, desires and in its funding of regulation, uh, the regulatory authorities in the economy, in the US economy. So the George Bush regime, the George Bush administration, didn't like a lot of regulation, so whatever regulation was there, they tended to underfund those authorities so that they couldn't do their job properly. In addition to which, the US has a whole um, panoply of rules and regulations, some at federal level, some at state level. Sometimes these things don't match up, so it's actually very difficult to enforce some of these rules because there are, they are such a complex minefield of things to go through. So in effect, um, the argument goes, the bank's got a free ride. Second argument that it's the government's fault goes around the fact that um, the government encouraged uh, lending to disadvantaged groups in the community in order to give them a bit of a leg up in terms of breaking out of the poverty cycle. This started in fact in the Carter years back in the late 1970s, was continued by um, the Reagan administration, enhanced by the Clinton administration and then um, reinforced again or at least allowed to go ahead under the George W. Bush administration. So what they did through the companies that they used to own but they privatised, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae which underwrite many of the mortgages, a good chunk of the mortgages in the US, they were encouraging these, these banks to lend to disadvantaged groups you know, such as people in certain postcodes in certain cities, the inner cities of certain large um, population centres in the US saying these people deserve a bit of a go so let's, let's, let's slacken off the rules and give these guys mortgages. Right? So that's one argument. That's the second argument. The third argument is that Alan Greenspan kept interest rates too low for too long, interest rates being so low people looked for ways in which they could invest that money in things that became increasingly risky in order to get those higher interest rates, the risk return trade-off. So that's the way that government argument goes. So that's, that's the second lot of the complicated version. Now all of these things have legitimacy, right? All of these things have evidence to back them up that they are indeed part of the story. The third thing was this is a short-term debt problem, okay? Now, here I've pulled off the web the uh, yield curve i.e. the interest rate for US Treasury bonds right, in uh, 2003, the dark line, and that's UK equivalent, the US, UK gilts, 2003, and the yield curve, the return you get on a Treasury bond in 2007. Okay? Now you can see those two curves from 2003 to 2007 are very, very different in shape. In this circumstance in 2003, this is what we'd call a classic treasury yield curve, right? The longer you go out in terms of the maturity of the bond, the higher the interest rate. Why? Because you're taking on a greater risk by buying a bond that has a, a longer maturity rate. Okay? So this is essentially what the government will give you to, buy, to, to lend them money. So you buy a bond from the government, you're lending them money. If you buy a bond that matures in three months, you get a low amount. If you buy a bond that matures in 30 years, you get a much higher amount return for obvious reasons. However, that's all turned on its head by 2007. Now we have short-term interest rates, three-month and six-month interest rates, actually much higher 
than 10 and 30 year interest rates. That's what's called an inverted yield curve. And any economist who does anything about yield curves will tell you inverted yield curves are not very pretty. They're not nice things to have. They mean that there's something wrong in the economy. Now, this is 2007. Okay. I actually did a little bit of analysis on my own, which is an unusual thing for me to do. And the classic way that you test whether the yield curve, uh, what's happening with the yield curve, is you, is you do the spread of interest rate being charged between the three-month treasury and the 10-year treasury. Right? That's the yield spread. Okay? And all I did was plot it. I've inverted it so that the bigger the difference is higher on this. You know, if I did it the right way, it would be a negative number and it would go this way. But this just visually produces it better. There's some research done by the US Treasury in 1997 that says when you get an inverted yield curve, there is um, an increased chance of a recession in four quarters time. Okay? Now, this is October 2006 to April 2007, and I chose those dates specifically because they're about four quarters before the recession really, or before the global financial crisis really hit. Okay? And you can see that the yield spread got bigger and bigger in the wrong direction over that entire period of time. And anyone that believed that research done by the US Treasury would have been screaming and jumping up and down in December 2006 and again in March 2007 saying, boy, we're heading for a big fall. In fact, at this level, the US Treasury research shows that there's a greater than 50% chance that the economy will fall into recession when the yield spread hits that kind of a level. Right. So um, we, have a, we had a situation where short-term debt, strangely, was now much more expensive than long-term debt. What that simply means is was there was an excess of demand for short-term debt, short-term debt being something that, because of the capital flows, was easy to get. Okay, so lots of more companies were relying on short-term debt. Problem is, is with short-term debt is um, people can call in short-term debt at any stage and they can call it in and get you to pay the whole lot right up front, compared with long-term debt, which usually has all sorts of restrictions against being able to do that. So once things started to turn bad and banks started to call in their short-term loans, people started to get into all sorts of trouble. And it all started here because the short-term loans started to get very, very expensive relative to the long-term loans. And as I say, when that happens, you know we're fighting against um, economic logic. You know that there's something seriously wrong. So that's the short-term debt contribution to all of this. Again, from Amit Seru's wonderful lecture on this. The fact that in order to give somebody a mortgage, Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac came up with what they call a FICO score, which is essentially a credit checking system. You tick the boxes and you then give them a score out of, I think, 800 that says, what's your likelihood of being able to repay this loan? For their, um, for their regular loans, the cutoff point was 600. They, they basically said, if you've got 600, you're likely to be a pretty good risk. Rule of thumb, if you get 600, you get the loan. Okay. If you get less than 600, okay, then we've got to take another look at it. 
at the very least. And, you, and chances are you start to fall into the category where you won't get the loan. Now, you would expect a normal distribution curve for loans, right? Around about that 600 point. And so um, Freddie Mac basically said, loans over 600 will securitise those because they're a good risk. Anything below 600 we'll take another look at and we probably won't securitise it because the risk's too high and therefore we won't be able to sell it. As I say, you'd expect there to be a normal, a sort of a normal distribution, right? The research shows that in fact there's this big jump at about the 600 point. Now, who can tell me why you think that happens? Yes? Borderline people get bumped up, so you get 595, nah, round up. Precisely. Well, you get 580. Oh, look, we just won't tell them about this bit and that will flip you over to the 600. That way we can securitise a loan. If we can securitise a loan, you know, I can keep the transactions going, blah, 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 blah. So this is clear evidence that something a little bit dodgy is going on, right? This doesn't, this doesn't correspond to logic, right? This is not logical, okay? So something's going on with how people are being scored and clearly it's all in order to maximise the number of loans that can be securitised. So there are incentives obviously for these brokers and these mortgage people to sell lots of loans. But we only want loans that we can securitise because if we can't securitise them then they've got to sit in our books and we're in trouble. If you're a mortgage originator you, you can't hold any of these loans, you have to securitise them all otherwise you go out of business. So clearly big incentive, that's the Gordon Gecko greed thesis. Okay? The next part of the human frailty thing was incompetence. Study done last year Again, by some researchers at University of Chicago. Um, I did my MBA there, by the way, which is why I keep referring to it. Um, they did, they had a look at a collateralised debt obligation, one of these mortgage bonds, uh, portfolio of these mortgage bonds, and they found that these that had been rated by S&P, 70% of them got a AAA. But in fact, if you averaged out the ratings of the individual components of that bond, they only averaged at a B plus. Yet 70% of those loans, or 70% of the way in which they packaged those loans, were getting triple A's. Okay, so don't want to say S&P were doing anything dodgy. They're obviously stupid. Right? You can only explain this if they, if you assume that. There's a very, very low level of default amongst these lower performing loans, these lower rated loans. And at the same time, that when they do default, you get most of your money back by selling off the house. Okay. Now, in actual fact, you know, the, the key there is implausibly low default rates. It just doesn't bear to the evidence. But clearly S&P are doing something here that doesn't match the facts. So that's the incompetence theory. Another element of it was UBS, for their best quality loans that they put into a mortgage bond, right? and there's always a risk of default of these things, they said, well, if you took out insurance against 2% of those loans, we'll treat it as if it was risk-free. So we, we'll put it on our books as being no money at risk. Again, implausibly low level of insurance in order to be able to classify that thing as being risk-free. 
So you're, you're taking on a bond, you're buying an asset, right? You're insuring against default for only 2% of that mortgage, and then you're saying, well, by insuring 2% of it, bang, it's now risk-free. Okay? So again, stupidity. And the third part of the human frailty thing is that it was just really complex. Right? If I haven't, you know, th these things are, are difficult to put together. If I haven't convinced you yet that these things are complex, then I don't know what will. But the point is now, virtually all loans are being done this way. Virtually all loans are being securitized. Excuse me. Virtually all loans are being securitized. So now virtually all loans and the way in which the banks treat them are really, really complex. They're not just simple, all I've got to make, do is make sure that Joe the plumber pays me 700 bucks a month and I'm a happy man. Okay. And the final explanation for why the global financial crisis came about was, oh, we made a mistake. The fundamental assumption upon which we've based all of our economic policy making for the last 40 years, gee, it was wrong. Um, and two very significant people have actually stated exactly that. Ian Harper, you all know Ian Harper, he's Fair Pay Commissioner. He was all formerly on the Walls Committee, which was the committee in the mid-1980s in Australia that recommended all of the de financial deregulation in Australia. What did he say? We said that we based all of the Walls Committee's recommendations on the efficient markets theory. We assumed that markets were essentially efficient and would always work themselves out with a, with a good outcome. Okay? Then Alan Greenspan says to a Senate inquiry, those of us who believed in this, the self-interest of lending institutions to protect their shareholders, are in a state of, state of shocked disbelief. Okay. So now you have the most powerful banker in the world of recent time saying, you know what? Everything I assumed about how the world works for the last 30 years, gee, I got it wrong. It doesn't work. So that's the complicated version of the story. Right? There are a whole bunch of things that contributed to this. That's what the tsunami it is. It's not simple. It's not easy. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's gone wrong. At its heart, it's about dodgy people giving loans to people who don't deserve them. But the reason that it turned into a global financial crisis is because of all of the other things contributing to it at the same time. So again, it wasn't just one thing that people tripped over. It was a whole bunch. So finally, I promised in the title of this that I would talk about what does this mean for ambitious business people such as yourselves. Well, the first conclusion you might want to come to is don't become a banker. <laughs> right? Because becoming a banker is, you know, people look at you like you're a villain now and all the rest of it. And you're probably, if you are a banker, you're probably in, in, at risk of losing your job. Right. An alternative view might be, this is exactly the time to become a banker. Because the, bankers, the banks have realised that there's a whole bunch of idiots that they've hired to work for them, so now they might be looking for some smart people to, to hire instead, i.e. people with RMIT MBAs. <laughs> right. The real lesson, the real takeaway for me, however, is something that has been a, a, a real... Um, pet topic of mine for a long time, which is now is probably the best time you'll ever have in your entire career to put your hand up in the middle of that management meeting and say, hang on guys, 
this looks a bit dodgy. Perhaps we should do something different. Right? When everything's going swimmingly, if you put your hand up and say, you know what, this looks a bit dodgy, I don't think we should do this, everyone's going to go, shut up, we're making a fortune out of this. Now's the time to speak up. Now's the time where the dissenting voice will get a lot of airtime. So if you have any interest whatsoever about changing your organisation, about changing the way in which you do business, about changing the nature of the, of the relationship of your business with its shareholders, with its customers, with any of its key stakeholders, now's the time to do it. You will get a fair hearing now, the sort of hearing that you wouldn't have got even a year or two ago. So for me, that's the big takeaway. People like me who are always looking out for something that's gonna go wrong and love pouring oil on things that look rosy um, are actually gonna get listened to. So as I said, given that you're all RMIT MBA graduates, you're all very interested in making the world a better place. This is your chance. However, for me, I still like the simple story because I think that's the best. So thank you very much for your patience, ladies and gentlemen. I hope I've been informative in some way.